Hi everyone, back for another episode of Chronicles. I'm Maya, I'm a global health advocate based in Boston in the United States. I'm a cancer survivor and someone living with a severe chronic immune disorder. Hey everyone, my name is Job and I'm an industrial engineer living with a kidney transplant here in Nairobi, Kenya, and I'm excited to be on this episode of Chronicles, guys. Hey everyone, it's Michaela Newman calling from Geneva, Switzerland, but a an American and Canadian uh, by passport. Uh, I am the daughter of a man living with HIV and bipolar disorder, and also um, a dabbler in a few uh, mental health areas um, with frequent bouts of anxiety and, in the past, depression and social anxiety. Great to be here today. So we've done a couple of episodes recently that have been pretty heady, big picture, kind of macro-political topics, and, and we really want to bring this back down to the personal and some of our experiences. I had a conversation with a friend a couple of weeks ago where she was asking me, we got talking about back when I was first diagnosed with cancer, some of the, the most helpful piece of, pieces of advice that I got, some of the kind of people who reached out that really helped me figure out how to navigate everything, and then just a lot of moments where people missed the mark, where, and it's totally understandable, you don't know what to say when, when someone tells you something tough or about chronic illness, and there have been kind of places where, where people just didn't, didn't have great advice or it didn't miss the mark a little bit. So I thought it would be a fun episode to talk about. I think we all kind of come at this from different experiences. And, and I think we all also give advice. And um, people reach out who are coming into NCDs and chronic illness for the first time or newly diagnosed. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about how we give advice to, to others. I think we can kind of go off in whatever direction we'd like, but it'd be great to hear from, from you guys, kind of best advice, worst advice. Yeah, I think I can go first, Maya, because I relate to a lot of what you said just opening this podcast. You know, when I was diagnosed with chronic kidney disease in 2015, in, May, in March of 2015, it was a shock. And I found out with the doctor that it was chronic kidney disease. It was what is known as a crash landing into stage five. Like the previous weeks, maybe a month before, I thought I was a healthy individual doing my thing. And then suddenly, um, for the chronic kidney disease, I'm on stage five, which means that I, I'm going to need dialysis immediately. So one of the first reactions, and maybe I'll go into reactions before I go into advice, is a lot of people tend to think that kidney disease or chronic kidney disease means that one of the kidneys has, has failed and not both. So a lot of people ask me whenever I tell them or when I tell them, hey, I have chronic kidney disease and I'm on dialysis, they would say, hey, both your kidneys failed? And I'd always be like, yeah, by the time someone needs dialysis, both your kidneys are pretty much done. A lot of people don't know you can survive on one kidney. And that's something that I would like to just clarify and put out there starting this podcast. But in terms of advice, once I 
I guess, got around to, you know, accepting that I have chronic kidney disease and opened up to talking about it, a lot of people, and I don't know if this is advice, but the direction the conversation would go would, it would be very religious. And I would be told, hey, your kidneys will come back. You know, God is in control and he's going to bring your kidneys back. You, you won't have to transplant. Dialysis is temporary. So what it did to me is it made me feel like I should wait on dialysis for my kidneys to come back. It gave me, I, I, I want to call it false hope, but it, it kind of gave me hope that my kidneys will come back, even though the tests and all the science behind it, because in the dialysis center every week, they would uh, do tests for kidney, for kidney function, and it was pretty much a flat line. Like, I had no fluctuations, nothing. So... Hearing this on the social side of like my friends and family and close people was was difficult for me because I I was seeing one thing with the science but in social circles everyone was telling me they're gonna come back you're healthy you're young there's no reason for your kidneys to fail so I don't think it counts as advice but that was my first reaction socially was a lot of people kind of just kept telling me my kidneys are coming back we're praying for you. I got a lot of Bible verses, and it was really difficult for me, just because I wouldn't accept. It took me longer to accept because of that. That's fascinating, because it was almost directly the opposite for me. I don't know that this really is sort of advice or in, in the category of advice necessarily, but so many people would kind of hear my cancer diagnosis or see that my hair was falling out or kind of want to connect, want to be supportive. Um, And they would launch into, oh, my cousin had cancer or, oh, my grandmother had cancer. And sometimes it was, like, distinctly about advice of, like, what I should do. Should I shave my head? What I should do with my hair as it was was starting to, to thin out. But it was those moments where someone wants to connect, they think of like the first thing that comes to their head. And when you ask them about, is your aunt okay? The rest of the story was usually, oh no, they died. Or, oh no, their hair fell out and it came back and it was super weird and it was awful. And, um, and so it was, what I was seeking, seeking was people who were okay, who had gotten through cancer, who were doing, okay, who could tell me advice about what what to prepare for. I had a very treatable form of cancer. I had kind of a 96% success rate. And so it, it was not as helpful as people thought it was for me to, to hear the really tragic, mm. unhelpful stories. Um, and the first person who kind of broke through that, that I could talk to really openly was my cousin who had my form of cancer in the 1980s, and he reached out, and that was just worlds different because I could complain to him, and he got it, and I could ask him questions, and he had lived 30 years past his cancer diagnosis and knew what to expect. And um, But it's, it's fascinating that that was just, like, completely the opposite for the two of us. If I might um, add some kind of general thoughts that I've, I've had around advice, which are, of course, very much inspired by Brene Brown, who I think I talk about 
almost <laughs> daily. Like, it's quite something. Yeah. I've noticed recently, I don't know if I've said this before, that like when I read other people in an interview or something, you know, I just read the words. But if I read something that's attributed to her, like I can hear her voice in my head. Mm. Um, <laughs> but I think um, she has hosted conversations or centered conversations on a few really important things to think about when in situations of giving or receiving advice, particularly giving advice. And one is from a recent podcast, and again, I'll share the link for show notes, but around um, stopping before you give advice and staying curious a little bit longer because it's so easy for us to want to kind of launch into advice giving, but in fact, we can actually be there for people by asking more questions or asking them you know, what they need from us. Uh, do they want a listener? Do they want advice? Do they want someone to brainstorm uh, about a subject with, you know, so that this is the kind of thing that I think we don't pause to reflect on often enough. And I know that this is true for me, uh, especially when a conversation feels awkward or I want to be helpful, I might immediately spring into trying to identify solutions when I haven't actually given a lot of time for the other person to share in more detail what it is that they're they're particularly grappling with. And I know that in my experience, sometimes when I'm overwhelmed with things going on in my family or with my father, I'm sharing because it feels like I'm not a big enough container to hold whatever it is that I'm trying to carry. And I'm just, I'm just overflowing a little bit, but I'm not necessarily looking to take any immediate action or don't necessarily feel like there's anything that I can do. And another, another piece is this, uh, question of empathy versus sympathy and empathy is really being able to hold the space with the person um, and again there's a great uh, Brene Brown cartoon that shows the difference between the two um, and you know sympathy is very much uh, oh you have a cancer most people survive well at least it's not you know definitely terminal or oh like uh, you have this issue, well, at least it's not heart failure, or at least it's not, or, or even if when you've lost someone, you know, at least you had time to say goodbye to them versus it being something uh, like a, a car accident or something where someone dies suddenly. There's all of this strange comparative suffering that takes place instead of allowing people to, to deal with and face and um, share their very real lived experiences, um, you know, without it being put alongside something else, like Maya, as you mentioned, somebody else's experience with or exposure to a cancer diagnosis. Uh, so those are a couple of things that I often grapple with and think about in these circumstances, both in our personal lives, but also in the work that we do. May I just jump in and kind of respond to some things Maya and Michaela, you guys said, but for, for Maya, I really relate with a comment on someone talking about a person who lived with the condition and at the end of that story you end up not making it or just being in a worse condition than you thought you think they are in. So an example I would give and one thing I'd like to add is that sometimes people would come and be like, yo, I, I know my uncle or my grandfather and it would be way older people than myself and mm -hmm. Maya, like, when you're talking about that, it's like, okay, so 
yes, you know somebody, but they're in a totally different space for me. You know, here I am as a 24-year-old, I'm young, and relating to someone who is way older, who's lived their life, a very different experience. And I don't know if you experienced that, Maya, but for me, that was a big one because a lot of people with kidney failure are older. Then for, for me, Taylor, it would, like, pause before launching into advice. That is brilliant. It's like, we need to do that more. A lot of times, as Maya said, a lot of people don't know what to say. And so saying something may be cutting the silence or the, the tension in the silence. But because of that, a lot of things are said that don't really end up being helpful or building the person's confidence who is dealing with the condition. So I really like that and understanding the situation first before speaking. But I wanted to say that there are not many people who empathize. And I think Maya, when you're talking with your cousin who had the condition, your cousin could empathize with you, and that's why you connected so much. I have a lot of friends who are on dialysis or going through organ failure, and our challenges are similar. So the advice coming from someone who's gone through the same condition or something similar, it hits different. It hits so different because at that point, you're able to relate and be encouraged at the same time. And as you say, we can vent. Because when I vent about something on dialysis, like there's this thing when I would dialyze, I would get terrible cramps. It would be just horrible. Like my leg would be just cramping. And so talking to, let's say, my sister or someone who hasn't gone through dialysis, they, they can't really relate or give advice because they haven't gone through it. But if I talk to my friend who's been on dialysis for a couple of years and they're able to relate, it makes me feel like I'm not alone, one. And then it also encourages me because at that point, you know someone who's gone through it and they're fine and they're actually battling through the symptoms or the side effects of dialysis or a treatment that you have to take. So the empathy versus sympathy is a big, big difference. And a lot of people who haven't gone through the condition sympathize. And so it feels so very cool. And often, often, it's not relatable to us because mm. they have got through it. So they may come across as insensitive or they may say something that they just, there's no relation. So that's what I wanted to say. But I don't know if Maya or Michaela, you want to jump in and say something? Yeah. Two quick ones I'll say is uh, I think you've landed on, both of you have landed on an important point of peer support. Uh, and, and what community or conversation between those who are going through the same thing can foster. And I think we forget, like, even when we talk about looking for, yeah, mentors or guidance, we often kind of look up, above us, like, to authority figures or whatever it might be. But there's so much that we can learn from one another. I think that's also why this platform is so exceptional. Um, and then the other point that, that you you know, I can respond to from more of a, a personal position is that this, this sympathy, and sometimes it's not even that it's like, um, sometimes it feels like you're becoming somebody else's gossip. So, you know, in my experience, when I was younger, especially, um, to share that my father was HIV positive or bipolar with someone Often people did not understand what that meant. And, and later on, um, more people were familiar with with both of these conditions. But 
it felt like I became the thing, the, the object that people talked about. So it's not sympathy even. It's certainly not empathy. It's like you're you're not even, as you said, Job, you're not even part of the conversation. You're you're just the, the new drama that can be spread or discussed and like, oh my gosh, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? Or, oh, you know, oh, he's so young or she's so young. And, and in my case, it was, um, you know, I dealt immediately with stigma as well. So when I would confide in, in people about my father's status, I mean, actually across both uh, areas, uh, people would question m my own mental or physical health. So when I would tell people about this, you know, I often felt like I then had to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm HIV negative, you know, this is not affecting me directly. Or I would have people later on go, oh, I just thought you were also bipolar. And, and, you know, it became not a moment of shared feeling or vulnerability, but, but really just a talking point um, and a judgment and a stigma. Uh, so, so that, it also sometimes prevents you from revealing what's on your mind or seeking advice because the more that you reveal these things to, and again, we now do this quite openly on this platform, but can expose you to to forms of, of judgment or pity, which I think, again, not sympathy. And, and that can be a very uncomfortable thing if you can't talk through it. Yeah, it's such a new a, a nuance that we're getting into. And I, I love that when we start a conversation in a certain place, we kind of keep pulling back more and more layers. I think something that, that both of you were talking about where it's important to sort of listen as... Um, that the kind of empathy sympathy distinction and kind of listening before you jump in to give advice something that i've always received really well but also kind of given where i've been frustrated of 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 people trying to sort of connect their own experience or kind of competitively bring in oh this happened to me too mm -hmm. um kinds of moments sometimes it's okay to just not immediately respond with advice, but just say, I'm sorry, that sucks. Yeah. What do you want to talk about? Or what, how, how can I kind of listen? Like what, just, just listening can be as helpful in those moments as sort of actively giving advice. Um, I mean, I'd love to sort of get more into how we've given advice um, in a little bit, but I just first had a have, have either of you ever gotten just something so wild that it makes you, like, just, you don't know what to do with it? Or, like, I, one of the things that I shared with my friend when we were having this conversation is um, someone in my life who is someone I genuinely love and respect, and I, and I don't want to um, shame anyone for a moment like this, but um, gave me a big lecture about kombucha and how that was going to be my saving grace and the whole time I was sitting there going I think chemo is what's going to get me through this one um, yeah. but I love how much you care and I love how much but no kombucha me not drinking kombucha before I got cancer was not the reason I got cancer nor is me drinking exactly your favorite kind of kombucha the thing that's going to get me through this but oh I love that you want to help right now and I'm just going to kind of 
inwardly chuckle and just keep going because have you guys ever gotten something that just felt wildly off? I don't know if it's wildly off, but for me, a lot of the times, uh, it's, it's scientifically based. Like, I was told once that instead of going for dialysis, I could take sodium bicarbonate and that would help reduce the, like it would help encourage my kidneys to function better. And so that was the wild one. And it was kind of based in science because dialysis machines do use bicarbonate to help remove some of the toxins from your blood. But I have never had someone say, like, take it, you know, physically with water and drink it. So that was one of the things I had that was just wild and I even had to ask my doctor about it, but it, it, it was, yeah, it was based on science, but I think it's just science fiction where, you know, mm-hmm. since dialysis machines use it, then a person can use it at home and you'll be fine. Yeah, I've also faced a few circumstances, um, you know, advice to put crystals under my pillow uh, to help with anxiety or, uh, or even, and, and again, I have mixed feelings about these kinds of things because, gosh, if someone's putting this forward as your main point of care, that is potentially problematic. But if it's about creating ritual or comfort around circumstances or giving you a sense of control or agency, I'm not necessarily opposed. Um, So, for instance, you know, CBD oil is often given as advice for, or it's not advice, it's aid for um, maybe anxiety or stress. But, but here's, I mean, here's my most recent challenge. Um, my father is manic again uh, in a very frustrating pattern that I see every year. And I think one of the biggest challenges sometimes is to love someone through a period where there is no real um, conversation or advice that you can give. And in fact, he had me on a call last week, a sneak attack FaceTime call, where he's working with a woman in Canada um, who is selling psychedelic therapeutics. And he's, you know, kind of self-prescribing. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, cool. This woman pitching herself as a mental health professional is giving my father microdoses of of mushrooms um, when he's not proven to, to be able to stay um, to stay as himself. I mean, he refers to, to his manic, uh, character as his, has his evil twin. And you, you get into a moment of, um, not being able to, to give any advice, but to set your own boundaries. And I think that that, that can be equally, um, challenging because you spend maybe a year prepping with somebody, talking through brainstorming, and then, there feels like there's no control to be had anymore. And I guess then completing the advice cycle when I am kind of absorbing and going through those things and I, I let friends know, at this point I don't expect them either to have mm-hmm. advice for me. I think it's about exactly as you said, Maya, like that sucks. And and um, I think it's a, a, another part of the experience for me over the last years has been realizing how each year I grow stronger and how I cope with it. Um, because I still react very much as the child. Sometimes I want to shake him and be like, be responsible. You're the parent. Like I, 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 you know, I get angry about the sense of obligation and duty that I have as the child to protect 
him financially and emotionally and all of these things. Um, but I think it's also about recognizing when maybe you've absorbed a lot of advice and you've started to embody it in some way. So I think I've sought advice for many years and at least this year so far, what helps is to think, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm creating distance more quickly than I have in the past, but incredibly, um, you know, compassionate distance, but it, I don't know. I don't know if that's totally on point, but I think that, that when you're dealing with this thing, and I don't know if you've had this experience with your families as well, suddenly you're not, or my father's not the only receptacle for advice. It's also me. And I'm in that dual position of, you know, giving and receiving advice because I'm part of maybe a family situation or something that, you know, I'm, I'm sure your parents also received advice and during, during your, yeah, yeah, I'm so sorry. No, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I think the, I'm, I'm really close with the, the Danish community in Minneapolis and we have, uh, family camp and all sorts of, of different ways that, that our families connect in formal ways and informal ways. And um, there there's a form of cancer that, that me and my cousin had that's sort of gone through the community and um, uh, various people have had all young. Um, so there's a lot of connection across that. And then just someone else in um, the community, a, a young mother had breast cancer and she was really close with our family. So there's been this kind of interesting cycle, kind of set of relationships of, of mutual support and advice, both the kind of those of us who had cancer, the mothers of those of us who had cancer has been a whole other. Mm. Um, and, and I think one, one really interesting dynamic about that is sort of the strain and the, the kind of, the relationship that was the most strained for me while I was going through cancer treatment was with my mother. Mm. Um, we have a close relationship. She was so incredibly supportive and wonderful through it. But um, when something's really hard, you often sort of lash out at mm. the person closest to you. Um, and we also process really, really differently. She's very, um, she kind of, processes everything out loud I process everything inwardly and she would want to talk when I didn't want to talk and um she wanted to have control over decisions when I was sort of 21 and in control of my own health and that was a tension between the two of us um and so kind of we went through that and um a lot of the advice that I've given in the Danish community to other people going through cancer has actually been either me giving advice or my mom giving advice about the, the sort of mother daughter relationship within that or how to be better to your family as you're kind of going through how, how they can kind of know it's okay that it's not going to be completely everyone rosy, happy, or everyone kind of completely there for each other at every moment. Um, and then there's been this added layer of a, a good family friend of ours. The father is going through MS, and I'm close with the son. And so, again, it's sort of a lot of the advice is around 
the the son father relationship rather than actually what he needs as someone with MS going through like that that's where a lot of the connections and advice have been because um, it was such a big part of the experience and it's it's really challenging I mean what what you are going through with your dad I haven't had anything like that that's so hard um, I think the one the one moment that I just didn't know what it, I, I didn't feel like I was at all able to give advice was when I was in Cameroon and I was asked to talk to a young girl living with cancer. She had Burkitt's lymphoma. She was in a really, really dire uh, place medically. It didn't look like she was going to make it. And me as an American who had access to care, who didn't have to navigate malaria while I had cancer treatment, who um, was healthy and traveling in Africa a couple of years after diagnosis, it was the one place where it's like, I don't want to be put in this situation because anything that I tell this girl feels fake and doesn't feel genuine because I don't have anything I can tell her other than I'm sorry. And so kind of grappling with when that's okay to not, to not give advice maybe I can, I can jump in real quick. A couple of things you said, Michaela, on compassionate distance and just finding your own peace within yourself. Even as someone who is living with condition, like Maya said, sometimes you go through things and you won't be able to say anything to someone who is going through some, something similar because there's certain, there's certain factors that are a bit different from your scenario and for me, I can give an example of this is a friend of mine whose kidneys failed about the same time as mine. I think his were maybe two, three months before me in 2015. And here I am, uh, managed to get a donor and there was enough money and I got the transplant. And a transplant is a, is a treatment. It's the best treatment. It's not pure. So I'm living my best life, but I still have chronic kidney disease and I feel like his life and mine is, is a foil between us. You know, he's still on dialysis to date. Uh, when you have chronic kidney disease and when you're on dialysis, the doctors advise you to get a fistula, which helps with the dialysis. So a fistula is a big, it's a vein that allows the dialysis to be as efficient as possible. But when you crash land and you're suddenly on dialysis, doctors have to put a, a catheter and, uh, around your neck and that may, helps you survive, but it's not the best dialysis you can get. Mm -hmm. So he's still using a catheter, and he's gone to his third one now, and it's starting to give him problems. And he calls me quite often uh, just to update me and tell me what's going on, and sometimes to vent. And quite honestly, I do not know what to say half the time because, yes, I dialyzed for a year and a half, but I got a fistula, my fistula worked, but the transplant, like everything kind of worked according to how it's supposed to. But here is someone who has the same condition as me and things didn't work out quite as it did for me. So just having that distance where I'm also taking care of myself because yeah. I want, obviously, when someone's going through something similar to what you've gone through, you want the best for them. You want to try and help where you can. But you have to look after yourself as well because you're, you're going through it too, you know, and even caretakers go through it. My, like, your point on the relationship with your mom, my relationship with my mom was strained when I was going through dialysis. 
and she's the closest person to me. So it was so difficult to process when we process so differently. As you say, sometimes you don't want to talk about it. Sometimes you just want to exist and be rather than process and break down and understand the implications of what they're going through because it's so heavy and people process differently. To date, I'm still processing. So mm-hmm. I'm just looking how to take care of myself as well. And maybe, yeah, sometimes just saying it sucks. You know, it's just the way life is may relate closer to me trying to say, hey, it's going to be better. It's going to, you know, I don't know that, you know, he may not make it. And that's so difficult for me to fathom. It's so hard for me to imagine that the technology, the medicine, there's everything. But because of money, he he might not make it. And I'm here living the best life I can with the condition I I have. What about good advice, either that you felt like you gave or that someone someone um, really got through to you. For me, it was sort of after after cancer, um, I was really eager. I was 21 when I was diagnosed. I kind of went through it, took a semester off of school, took the summer off. I was really ready to just get back into my life, um, pretend like it hadn't happened. Um, I was also dealing with grief. I had lost a good friend of mine in college. He had had an accident at our conference track tournament. He was a pole vaulter. He had hit his head um, and we lost him. And I was so ready to put all the awful stuff aside and just jump back into school, think about grad school. Like it was my senior year of university. I wanted to just sort of get back into class, uh, think about grad school and life after college and um and I had a professor who she was an advisor she was one of my uh, faculty advisors she had gone through cancer before as well she was quite a bit older than I was but um had had dealt with cancer and on multiple occasions but I can definitely remember one time very distinctly she was the person in my life who consistently told me something no one else had told me, which is recovery post-cancer is harder than treatment. With treatment, you have a goal, and you have uh, appointments, and you have X, Y, or Z thing you have to do to get through it. After you're in remission, there's no blueprint, there's no game plan, and you're dealing with all of that trauma for, I don't know if there's a better word for that, um, and she knew what I was going through personally with um, with this grief and other stuff, and she consistently was the one who said, it's going to be hard, you need to slow down, you can't get right back in and do things at the pace that you were doing, you need to sort of live in it, and that is something that was incredibly helpful and needed at that particular moment, but it also has sort of been the mantra for me for getting diagnosed with the immune disorder and any other moment where things are feeling really hard of just, I have Eliza's voice in my head going, it's going to be hard. You can take the time that you need. Um, Have you guys had sort of advice that's really, really kind of resonated or, or hit for you in the right way? Yeah, 
Uh, I think I can jump in first. For me, one of the advices or insights that really hit hard was I had just gotten the transplant and yeah, I was thinking, so doctors pitch the transplant as this, like, it's, you've made it, you know, it's everything, it's the solution. So when you get here, you feel, I think you're kind of prepped in a way to over-anticipate what a transplant is. So I get a transplant and I still have some of the, some of the, the issues I had on dialysis, you know, not everything is solved when you get a transplant, but it's way better than dialysis. So I'm, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that it, I guess you have to manage your expectations. So after the transplant, maybe it's been a year post-transplant because the first six months you are in quarantine. So I'm going out again. I'm able to do things socially, you know, like whereas before I was just in the house. And before that, I was on dialysis. So most of the time, you're just exhausted and fatigued. So I'm enjoying the moving around, meeting new people. And so... Whenever I tell someone that I have a transplant who's not in my circles, doesn't know me, everyone is really shocked because, of course, I'm young and I look relatively healthy, you know, and I know looks can be deceiving, but that's usually what happens. So they get really shocked and they're like, no way. And so I get into my whole story and how I ended up with a kidney transplant at 26. So one of the ladies there at the table looks at me because I had been venting about the impact of telling my story. So I had started going to TV stations, radio stations, talking about my condition, talking about the the big gaps in the health systems, really. A lot of the costs are too high, and my friends who are stuck on dialysis, I was so frustrated that not everyone who needed the help got the help, and this is a common problem across all NCDs. So I just tell her that I was so frustrated by it that even though I'm telling my story, even though I'm going around, even though I'm being so vulnerable and open about what I've been through, I don't see the impact. I, I hadn't seen the impact. So I was like, I don't know if there's a point to me talking about it, you know? And she told me that despite the feedback, you need to broadcast, you need to speak about it, you need to talk about it, because you may never get the feedback that you imagine in your mind you're going to get. And for me, that that resonates till today. It, it, it really pushed me to continue telling my story, to even found my organization. Like it pushed me to do a lot of my advocacy work because at that point I was like, there's no point of doing it because I thought in my mind that the feedback would be, oh, this is the change, this is what needs to happen, but it may never happen. We may speak about it for all our lives and nothing tangible happens, you know, like how we imagine it would be. But the fact that you broadcast and you say your truth and you spoke it and you did it to the best of your ability, that in itself should be enough. That should be enough for you. You don't have to get the feedback. You don't have to get the results. You don't have to get everything you've been imagining how it would go. That doesn't have to happen because that's putting unrealistic expectation on the world. Like It's like you send out your message and you're like, I need all these messages to come back to me. No, you can't look at it that way. And I guess I am idealistic in that way. But that's the best piece of advice I got. Well, carrying on from our our earlier points, I, I think that some of the best moments I've had were still uh, were, were because of the absence of advice. Um, because often, you know, when we, we go to someone or we bring something to someone, we're looking for connection, 
and again, I think a lot of people, um, or information. So I think there's, it's important to distinguish, like when you're going to a doctor or when you're going to a community group, um, with a particular question on which you're seeking, yeah, information or action, that's separate. But sometimes when you're just, uh, working through something out loud, some of my best moments have been, uh, in the, in the absence of advice. And I've also tried to, to do more of this as well, going back to those earlier points. So when it comes to mental health concerns, for instance, um, if you're feeling low or anxious, a lot of people will tell you kind of the standard, have you slept enough? Have you eaten enough? Um, are you journaling? Are you taking care of yourself? And, you know, go out for a run or... I was just go take a walk. Yeah, yeah. Go, do, try do this, do that, do this, do that. And sometimes to just be given, so I guess it's around to be given permission and space. So going back to those points of like, oh, that's really hard. Um, sometimes, you know, hearing like, I, you know, you know what's best for you right now. Like if this is what you need to do right now, I, because it comes down, and I, I have this conversation with my dad all the time when he's really low. I want him to go, to go out and take a walk and I want to make sure he's eating and, and on his medication and getting enough sleep and keeping his brain engaged. But I also know that he knows that. And I, I you know, I, I respect and trust that he knows that and that he's already probably being his own worst critic and his own best coach in some ways. And, and that what I can do is, is, hold the line with him and tell him that I know it's really hard and that I know he knows what he could be doing, but that, um, if this is the right thing for him right now, then, then that, you know, I trust his instinct. And, um, if he wants to, you know, think about another activity or something that we could do together that I'm always there. And I think that that, it comes down to that a lot when I'm in my worst moments of anxiety or something else that, someone, you know, when someone says, it's, it's kind of normal you're feeling this way, or it's okay that you're feeling this way, and it's going to pass, and, 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 you know, it's all okay, basically, because I think sometimes if someone starts giving me really concrete advice, like, do this, do that, do this, I actually get really overwhelmed, like, I'm not in a position to take any action, (laughs) Um, I'm just feeling a certain way right now, and I, 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 I am comforted by someone telling me, this makes sense, you know, or yeah, or take the break or take the, take the night off. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things that, that I struggle with is a lot of emotional eating because when I get really stressed, uh, especially because so many of what I, so much of what I face is from a big distance and, and I have no control. And then I tend to binge eat really badly. And then I berate myself for doing that. So I'm really hard on myself, and I I'm just incredibly yeah, self-hating. And sometimes I'll reach out to a friend, and I'll be like, "I did this," and you know what she'll say? She'll say, "That's not so bad. Tomorrow, you know, tomorrow you can take a different decision if it makes you." Or she'll say, "Like, as long as you feel good doing this, then keep doing it. And when you don't feel like when it's too much, you'll know when to stop." And this kind of idea that like that my body or my mind, whatever it is, has an intuition that it can follow. And 
that I might not always be perfect in my um, in my implementation of the the, the knowledge that I have, um, but that that that's okay and that's an okay response. So I don't know that. Not that I'm looking for someone to just like support any self self aggrandizement or like um, <laughs> you know to give me permission to do harmful things, but. Um, in fact, very much not that, but, but basically to allow me to be human because I am quite a perfectionist and, um, can hold myself to incredibly high standards. And I think to be, to be told that whatever I'm doing that I think is not okay is, is, is totally normal. That's huge. I mean, it, it, what, what we really seem like we've been kind of coalescing around is connection over advice. I, Again, I'm the direct opposite when when things are incredibly stressful for for me or I'm dealing with kind of uh, just in a, in a really tough place, I stop eating. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the, the total opposite reaction. And kind of at the beginning of COVID when everything was so scary and unpredictable and um, a friend of mine kind of knew it was a pattern for me, um, didn't didn't lecture me, didn't judge me, didn't um, kind of present it as advice, but she uh, just was like, hey, if you need someone to remind you to not have dinner at 10 p.m. because you've been working all day through kind of evacuating staff and all of the things we were doing at the front end of COVID, and I didn't actually take her up on it because just knowing that she was there and she knew and... Mm -hmm was there if I needed her, like, that was enough, and it was just, like, enough of a reminder of, like, okay, I need to, like, build the hour in for lunch or build the hour in for dinner um, and not just kind of work, work, work through through the crisis. Um, yeah, connection is sometimes way, way, or just kind of being being there for someone is, is more valuable than, than concrete advice a lot of the times. Maya, I, I think connection is an amazing note to end on and that it's an amazing challenge for us to think about when advice giving leads to connection and when it leads to distance. And I think that's a really, a really nice frame to keep in mind as we, as we continue in these discussions and in our lives. That's lovely. Good to chat, guys. Pleasure as always. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of Chronicles. We appreciate all the support. If you want to listen to our previous episodes, including this one, you can find them on regular podcast listening apps on our website, chronicles at podiant.co. You can follow us on Twitter at ChroniclesPodCST. You can also reach out to us on email at ChroniclesHealthPodcast at gmail.com. We're so thankful you could join once again and see you on the next podcast.